You are listening to Checkbox Outreach, a podcast that showcases excellence and raises awareness of current issues from those who are directly impacted, but typically not at the table. Now, here are your hosts, Aaliyah Gaskins and Katie Leonard. Hi, welcome to Checkbox Outreach. This is Katie. And this is Aaliyah. And we are really excited to have you back for another episode. Today, we are speaking with Sheba Williams, and she is the founder and executive director of No Left Turns Incorporated. Sheba, welcome to the show. Hello. How is everybody? I'm doing well. It is a, it is a beautiful day here in uh, Northern Virginia. Finally made it outside. So. <laughs> beautiful. Beautiful. Sheba, where are you located? I am in Richmond, Virginia, so the weather is the same. It's beautiful, and I think it's going to be kind of cold this weekend, so I'm enjoying the day. (laughs) For sure, for sure. So, Sheila, uh, Aaliyah has shared a little bit with me about your story, and I'm super intrigued. My work, I have a company where I launch and grow businesses founded by people with criminal histories to hire people with criminal histories within those companies, and so the second chance realm, the reentry space is very near and dear to my heart. And so I'm really, really excited for the conversation. So if you could just give us a, a recap or how did your journey, you know, land you right here talking to us today? Um, so I guess it just kind of kept coming at me at the age of 10. Uh, both my parents were arrested and incarcerated for a crime. Um, my grandma, my grandparents stepped in and kind of raised us, me and my sister, and they always instilled like education. So we were doing really well at school, did fine, graduated top of my class. I went to college in 97. Um, my sister ended up being incarcerated, wrongfully um, accused of a homicide, and she was ultimately acquitted. And then she had to go through the whole process of getting an expungement, even though she was found not guilty through the courts. She had to go through a whole process of requesting to get her rights reinstated and different things like that. And then in 2004, I was wrongfully convicted of a crime um, because I used to work at an, an, with an employer as an assistant and the girl who was in charge was a functional addict. Um, she had stolen upward of like $50,000. And when she got caught, she was still working at the employer. I had been laid off two years earlier. And she told the detective that I had stolen all this money. Um, And they ended up coming and arresting me in Norfolk, Virginia, where I lived with my kids at the time. Um, And I was sentenced to probation. I didn't didn't do jail time, but I was sentenced to probation. Um, In the interim of all that, my now husband... um, went to prison at the age of 15. He was tried as an adult and he was sentenced to 74 years. It wasn't until he got incarcerated and ended up in the system that he met with a guy in prison who was a jailhouse lawyer. And he taught him about appeals and different things like that. And he ended up doing his own appeals and he did about 10 years. The first time he came home for a year and a half, we met in 2002. And then he went back to prison after a year and a half and did eight and a half more years. So by the age of 36, he had done more than half of his life in prison than out. So we ended up back in Richmond in 2012. I had graduated from college. Um, I had been dismissed from a job because of my criminal history. 
and we both were looking for employment. We had put in over a thousand applications between the two of us in like a six month period, could not find a job. And that led me to be just pissed off, like frustrated. Uh, I was searching for options for people who had backgrounds and people who had justice and court involvement. And there were very few options here. So in 2016, Trump happened, and that kind of led me to get involved in restoration of rights work and justice work and connecting with people in prisons who, um, you know, were very much into the political scene. But of course, you're deprived of your right to vote once you are convicted. And No Left Turns was born. Uh, we, we realized that if you put people back to work, if you give people the opportunity to go to work for themselves, it does not makes sense to keep saying we rehabilitate and we believe in second chances, but you never give people the opportunity to work, you know, live in their own homes in a so safe is, environment. I'm sorry. What is the meaning of no left turns? So no left is felon backwards. And the motto used to be turning felons around. But as we started to use people first language, we, Stop using that. <laughs> but the name had already been like really popular. So I just kept it as is. So Sheba, tell us a little bit about what specifically does No Left Turns do and how do you know you're making an impact? So we are a pre-entry and re-entry organization. Uh, we are a credible messengers group where we first help adults who are re-entering into society and people who have felony convictions who have never been to prison because we deal with the same stigma. We also take people who have been to prison and connect them with people who have no justice involvement to be wraparound partners for youth who have incarcerated parents, youth who are in detention and diversion centers, and youth who um, are being pushed out of school by suspension. So in 2016, in our first three months of being in existence, we were part of the reason why 72,000 people were able to get their rights restored and eligible to register to vote. Um, that made a huge impact, you know. Um, what would you say, Sheba, is, I mean, this is clearly, it's a national issue. It's not just a Richmond issue. It's definitely not a Virginia, Washington, D.C. issue. What are the real community impact. So with, if you're looking at fatherhood, motherhood, um, income, what is your experience on how this issue really impacts our communities? So it's, it's multifaceted. It's so many layers to collateral consequences of a felony conviction. Misdemeanors are an important piece of it as well, but the felony piece is what monetizes counties and localities and it's a for, for everything nationwide. It's not just in Virginia. I just happen to be in Virginia and I'm well-versed in their politics, but you have issues with education. You have issues with income. You have issues with health. Lack of housing is a huge deterrent to mental health issues. Um, it, it is all intersectional with so many different things. But nobody seems to look at the effect on family and how they are separated from a person and, and having to fight to build that family foundation again. So, so many levels to 
what happens when you're convicted or what happens when you are accused of a crime because we unfortunately are guilty until we can prove our innocence or if we don't have the money or income to fight in court, we are guilty by default anyway. So I know last time um, you and I had a chance to speak, one of the things you had shared was that when we think about the impact of COVID-19, one of the things that's exposing is just all of the cracks in our current um, criminal justice system. And that when folks are released, you know, we talk about there are organizations that provide housing. There are some organizations that provide food. There are some organizations that help with workforce training. But there isn't kind of this coordinated and connected system especially in a crisis. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more and maybe give an example of what some of the cracks in the system look like and how they're being exposed in light of the current pandemic. So um, back on March 16th, when the state announced the shelter in place order, our governor decided that they would work on a plan to release 96 people. That is about three times more than what they normally release in a month's time in this area. So 96 was huge. And then as time went on, they decided that they would try to release uh, a little under 2000 people, which is a huge impact on our communities as far as resources. So they wanted to release people who had less than a year left in their sentence. And there's also another plan in place to release people who are eligible for parole, as well as a group of people who uh, fall under this law called Fishback, where they were denied, um, the jury was not told that parole had been abolished between 1995 and 2000, and they were denied access to fair trials. So there's three different types of things happening. And the goal is release, release, release. Well, to date, May 7th, almost a month later, there's only been 62 people released under the uh, early release plan. We were talking about the you know, people coming home and the work that you're doing in advocacy to get people home. But can you share a little bit your experience in, you know, in general, when people have come home from incarceration before they face so many barriers and so many obstacles. And I feel like right now with COVID-19, it's even worse. And so do you have any experiences currently that you're hearing from people about their journeys and coming home if they are getting released early? So it's absolutely worse with COVID-19 because not only do you still face the barriers with uh, employment, housing, social services benefits, um, different things like that, you have the isolation factor and they, they're not eligible for different things like the um, stimulus check or and some people who have distribution charges are not eligible for SNAP programs. So they have difficulty with food. So we have been providing food, but there are so many barriers that were in place before this. It's not even that they're just being exposed now. They're just on a wider scale and people are starting to pay attention. Yeah. And even looking at the quarantine requirements from people coming home um, some places are saying, hey, you have to quarantine for 14 days and where's home? What does that look like? Um, we had a guy who just reached out for employment and we had talked, I think, back in February. And then he just went back to jail for a little bit and got out. And he's like, well, I have to be in quarantine for 10 more days. And so I was just thinking of the impacts that that has on him now freshly, you know, getting out again and not being able to go anywhere, do anything, reach out to the people that he needs to talk to for social services or support. It's, it's a really tough time, I think. 
Yeah. I mean, like, so what we are doing, we don't have the faith in Department of Corrections. They say that they make people quarantine for 14 days before they send them home. But I felt like when people are being released, DOC will release them from a facility where somebody has tested positive and they are potentially taking that virus back to their families because most people are asymptomatic, as has been shown in the past couple of weeks with the testing. So we have been providing the hotel rooms for a period of five days. If nobody shows symptoms in that first five days, they're you know released to go home on the sixth day. And if they do show symptoms, and we have had you know a few people show symptoms, they stay at this hotel for 14 days to self-quarantine. So DOC is not really doing what they're saying they're doing because you're still putting people at risk. And we know that when someone is released from a facility, the family is happy to see them. And even though social distancing is in place, that doesn't stop people from going to congregate at that person's house to see them, which puts the greater community at risk. So that's been a thing that we've been doing since mid-March. And it's been, you know, a lot of people who are, you know, coming home. What people don't realize is the governor has promised to send home 2,000 people and has only met the number at 62, but you still have people who are coming up on their release dates without having those, without, you know, without coming from early release. You still have people who are being paroled who don't count under those numbers. So we have an extensive number of people who are coming home and, and utilizing those services. I mean, I think what I'm struck by is two things. I think one, the piece you raise about when your family member has been in prison and your family member has been away from you, the minute they're out, there's a desire to go be with them, to hug them, to embrace and to be connected. And in a situation where we're not able to connect physically, sort of what are the mental health implications of not being able to be around your loved ones and not having additional support? I think the other thing that comes through for me is that, you know, this is a system-wide issue. Or if we're only addressing the needs of 62 people right now, how are we going to address the needs of 2,000? And so I guess I'm curious from your perspective, if you were in charge of the system or, you know, creating a better response, what are the, some of the things that we should be doing right now? So th- this is definitely a learning moment for people who have not been paying attention to how the carceral system impacts our communities as a whole. It doesn't just impact people who are affected by incarceration. It impacts the taxpayers. It impacts your neighbors. It impacts people in the school system. And, you know, all across the world, this is a thing. So what they should be doing is raising the policy concerns with the restrictions on a conviction. I always tell people that we trust in our judges and our jury so much that we believe them when they say that five years and court costs and fines and suspension of license is sufficient. But once a person completes all of the terms of incarceration, they are returned back to our communities and they still hold against them whatever they did five years prior. It should not be a forever thing with a felony. It should not be a forever thing with a misdemeanor. But we as a country, we as a nation, hold that crime against a person forever as if that is the only thing that they have ever done in life. To ease the homelessness situation, to ease the the situation with uh, 
families being hungry, to ease the situation with the education and the wealth gap, we should not be holding these people responsible for a crime that they committed at one moment in their life for the rest of their lives. If we allow people to continue to grow, as DOC says, their goal is rehabilitation. If you release 95% of the people that you incarcerate and you say that you have done your job and have rehabilitated them, then we should stand on that and allow those people to be more than their conviction once they're released. And there are just so many, I think, in every issue and aspect of you know the criminal justice system or criminal, I don't even call it, I don't call it justice system so much, but there's so many touch points and so many, you know, places that interventions need to happen. And I think the stigma associated with, you know, people that have even had a, a mug shot. Like I tell people, it's not even people that have gone to prison. I've seen people not get employed because they had a mug shot online and their charge was overturned or dismissed. And so there's much work to do behind that. And I'm a huge believer in showcasing talent and showcasing hard work. I'm wondering what are some of the successes that you've had within your organization to, you know, to really stand on? Like, what, what can you point to to say, hey, this is a major success and a major victory um, and we need to highlight that? So we, we've had a 0% recidivism rate with all of our participants since 2016. We have a program that makes a contract with the person and lets them know that, hey, this is not just a program where you get the services and go. This is a relationship that lasts forever. And I expect great things from you. Um, we make sure that every person is signed up for the services they need, whether that be signing up for Medicaid or signing up for school. We make sure that once they complete parole and probation, uh, we provide the support in terms of writing recommendation letters. We help them find employment. We help them find housing that is safe and long-term, not just temporary housing. Um, and I think at about 85% of those people successfully complete the program and don't go back to prison. So that is a huge thing um, that people don't realize. It's, it's not just one program. It's a holistic wraparound. So, you know, very and proud of that. And I also, go ahead. I was going to say, what resources did you need to make, like, what made that happen? Like, was it, I mean, it's always funding, but what type of funding allowed that so, to? So in the beginning, we were, well, even now, we were very bootstrapped. And I, as a new, new grassroots organization, did not want to wait on large funders to see the potential in taking care of these people. So I am a licensed barber by trade, and I also work at a housing um, organization, and I work at a, a group home. So every extra dime that I have goes into this organization. So I pay for bus tickets. I pay for uh, work boots and clothing. I also do, you know, fundraisers here and there, but all of our funding comes from small donations. We have you know, actively been applying for funding, but have not been successful so far and, you know, getting funding. So I, I don't want to wait. I think that people's lives are worth taking the time to invest in them. So that's what we've been doing for four years. As I say, Sheba is one of the hardest working people I have ever met. And for her, 
I mean, when I met you, I felt like this is not just something you do as a job. This is your life that you have committed your work to. I mean, watching you work at like three, four in the morning and still have the energy to keep going just to make sure that the stories of your clients are elevated and that the resources are in place to make this happen. Like, I'm just always amazed every time I hear you speak and every time I see you work. And I guess I'm curious, you know, what, what's next for No Left Turns? What are some of the exciting things you guys are working on over the next couple of weeks? So with COVID-19, a lot of partner organizations have reached out to say, how can I help? And at this, this point, before COVID-19, we were training people who completed the program and people who were coming in to get involved in policy work. We spent a good amount of time at the General Assembly this year pushing uh, reinstating parole. We pushed expungement bills. All of them were tabled until 2021, but we have been organizing a group to work on those things. And we're working on a right to vote campaign, which alleviates the statement from the constitution that says that you lose your right to vote if you're convicted of a felony. We think that that should be removed and it is rooted in racism and a deep history that goes all the way back to like 1930. Um, so we are training people who are directly impacted to take the lead on what changes they want to see in these policies, because we can provide direct services forever. We can spin our wheels getting resources. But if we never change the systems that were put in place to keep people under a carceral state, we'll be just spinning our wheels forever. So we are actively involving people who have been through things to go and tell their stories to these politicians. And if these politicians and legislators don't take the lead to make the changes, because we have decided in Virginia to reinstate the rights of over 200-some thousand people, we're training people to be leaders and to take position in these political seats to make the change that they want to, to see. That's awesome. Your work is so commendable and so, so needed. And I think people need to hear the story of, you know, that you've been through it and that you're guiding people, you know, to reach the finish line with you. And I think that's so powerful. And, you know, just kudos to you. I'm just so excited. I'm sitting over here smiling so hard. I mean, I think the other thing too about your work, one of the reasons why Katie and I started this podcast is we were like, there's always somebody who's speaking for somebody else. And like, we're not always at the table. And I think what you're doing through your trainings and your programs is creating a space for people to tell their own story and to speak on their own behalf. And I think that's powerful. And it's something our elected officials need to pay more attention to. So we are just super grateful for your time. Um, I guess my last question would be, how can our listeners connect with you and engage with your work moving forward? So we are on everything as No Left Turns, Inc. And if you if you think about felon, it is no left. No left is felon backwards. So it's N-O-L-E-F-T-U-R-N-S-I-N-C. The website is www.noleftturns.org. Um, all the links to all social media are also on there. But anywhere you see No Left Turns with a blue uh left turn sign with the cross through it like the sign that's us <laughs> all right well thank you and um, looking forward to continuing the conversation thank you thank you thank you thank katie you, pleasure. yes indeed it's time for action checkbox outreach is more than a podcast and simply putting a check in a box this is about impact and moving the needle Aaliyah and katie what are the next steps 
Aaliyah, that episode with Sheba was amazing. I was so inspired by her. I think she's awesome. Yes, I feel like I was mind blown. As somebody who's not really focused on issues of criminal justice, I am learning every day. And listening to her speak, I was just like, oh my goodness. Tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. (laughs) But it really speaks to the power of having the people who have lived that experience at the table. Because we, you know, I told you I was only ever had a small little stint with law enforcement, like nothing that has been years. And I've never had it had a negative implication on my work history or getting a job. And so just her story, super powerful. So how did you, you met Sheba through... Yeah, so Sheba and I are both in a fellowship called, um, run by the New New Leaders Council, and I'll see for short. And we are fellows in this year's Virginia class. And our first institute was in Abington, Virginia, and they said that Sheba and I would be roommates. So I knew nothing about her besides what I found on the website. She wait, you were that up. person that actually like looked at her ahead of time. I did. I, like, <laughs> I need to know who I'm like sleeping with here. That's so funny. I would never, I, but, like, that's so opposite of me. But it's so funny because on night one, I got a text and she's like, actually, I won't be there until tomorrow. So you know me, I already had like an icebreaker and I was ready <laughs> to get to know her. And it was like, damn, she's not coming. Uh, <laughs> but the next day she came and we just sat and talked and she started telling me her story and why she founded No Love Turns. But then she shared kind of her husband's story, her sister. And I just was amazed, like just by the resilience of her family, but also the different touch points they've had with um, issues in our state, the advocacy they're doing. And I, when I t- tell you she was up working until like three, four o'clock in the morning, I kid you not, whatever it takes to make no left turns work she is doing it and hustling it. to make it happen you can and tell here i'm like the- i'm just like this sleep pregnant lady like <laughs> i hope she's gonna turn out the light soon but no i just knew i was like i need her on this podcast no, and her can, story is you too can important really feel her passion and her energy when she speaks and i think that's super powerful and i'm so glad that we had her as our first guest to really showcase that when we're talking about second chances and we're talking about rehabilitation and stigma and all of these things that, you know, are impacting that group, she like spoke to it so well. And the fact that criminal histories do need to stay in the past. I mean, we judge people as a society on the worst thing that somebody has ever done, but I've done plenty of horrible things in my life that I just didn't get caught for. And so the thing that I took away was when, I don't know, we have this narrative about rehabilitation, but also how when you come out, we want you to get a job, want you to get a job and provide for your family. And we don't want you to ever come back in the system. When she said that her and her husband put in a thousand job applications over six months, I was, I was sitting here like, should I give up after I put in like four when I'm looking (laughs) for a new job? It is so time consuming and difficult. And how is it that we create these systems and we give you this charge and then there's no support or help or a system that continues to stigmatize you or punish you for a mistake when you're trying to get back on your feet? It's so demoralizing for them. And one time I went to this talk and this guy was saying, imagine showing up and going to the going through the process and going to interviews, knowing that you were the best person qualified for the job and you don't get it just because of something you did in the past. And so it 
for that person, it perpetuates a story of not being good enough, of not being accepted. So why should they? At the thousand and one application mark, like, why should you care? Like, why should you go get the job? So checkbox outreach being different and us trying to move the needle forward, move the conversation forward and actually have some, you know, impact based on what we heard. What are the next steps for Sheba and her issues that she that she shed light on? So I think when I reflect on the conversation we just had, Sheba raised a number of important points. I think the first is that resources are siloed and that there's a lack of appropriate coordination when it comes to supporting folks around reentry. I mean, she raised issues around education, income, health, housing. And if you're coming out, like, how do we actually have a system where all of those things are available to help you rebuild your foundation and get back on your feet? And I don't know specifically all of the departments that work on those different issues, but I would be really curious around what sort of policies or programs are needed at the state level in order to ensure that those departments are talking to one another, are sharing data, are finding new ways of communicating with folks. I mean, it can't just be phone calls or text messages or pieces of paper, but like, what does it actually look like to meet somebody where they are and help them understand how to access the range of services that can help them build the foundation they need to apply for all these jobs, to get a job, to be stable and to thrive in that situation. And so I think that, yeah, go ahead. And what we've, talked about before about the silos, people do operate in silos. And I think that you have to stay in your lane to do what you're great at and to do great programs and do your work. But you hit the nail on the head saying it's the communication and how are people coming to the table? We have so many coalitions and, you know, groups coming together. And the whole purpose of a coalition and the work that I've done in coalition, you know, groups and community groups has been really, let's find the barrier and let's work together and solve the issue with our collected resources. We're not just coming to meet. We're not coming to keep talking about the issue year one, year two, year three, and nothing is changing. And so it's really important to have the real conversation and to admit and say, you know what? We're talking about rehabilitation here. Maybe Mm -hmm. we haven't really rehabilitated people, which shocker, we aren't. But to actually be open and not put our egos into the conversation and take it as an attack of our work or an attack of our, you know, what we've tried to do, but to say, okay, let's really talk about what the needs are and how do we move forward. And that's key for policymakers to be, you know, have their eyes open and their, I guess, be available for those conversations to say, okay, we're talking about what's real. Like you said, we're meeting people where they are. Now what's the next step? Are there policies that are inadvertently holding people back? And then how do we address them and move forward? Exactly. I think another thing she brought up that I've really been wrestling with is kind of, we know that when you don't have housing, housing is a huge like factor in terms of your physical health, your mental health, your social health. And now in the current crisis with coronavirus, housing is the place that's supposed to be where you stay, where you shelter at home and where you stay safe from spreading the virus. And when she talked about how folks are being released and they have nowhere to go and that her organization is trying to piece together funds just to be able to provide a hotel room so people can isolate so that they don't go back and and you know potentially expose their family to the virus if they've been exposed in jail. 
And I think for me, again, I don't know the answer, but I'd love to see like what conversations are happening among our leaders in the Commonwealth around housing and transitional supports when you leave jail in order to make sure that you have a stable home, especially in a place where there's a public health crisis and the best and safest thing you can do is be in a stable and stable environment. For the most part, incarceration, you know, criminal justice reform is a state issue. It's the state mm-hmm. policies. Um, there are clearly federal issues, federal implications. There are federal prisons. But for Sheba's concerns and what Sheba mentioned, that would be a direct, you know, correspondence with your state delegates and with your state representatives. But then also at the local level, coupling the the programs that are currently happening and the initiatives that people are currently working on or the resources that are available. So we're looking at a state issue and a local issue. The state policymakers are, there, I mean, that's they're there for policy. And so they need to hear how their current policies are impacting people's everyday lives. And then at the local level, it's more of what resources are available or are not available when people do return home. Yeah. As we prepare to wrap up, I want to leave us with a quote that she said, because I think it really summarizes what you're talking about around the state and local legislation. But at one point, Sheba said something like, we can provide direct services forever and we can spin our wheels getting resources. But if we never change the systems that keep people in this state, we'll just be doing this work forever. And I think Mm -hmm. that's which we have to have. Yeah. Like the services are important. The communication is important. The data sharing, all the things we've raised here. But if we're not fundamentally working with our state and local leaders to change the systems that continue to put these barriers up and continue to punish people for a past mistake, we're never actually going to quote unquote rehabilitate people or even create an opportunity for people to you know live the life they want to do. Yeah. Well, I'm copying and pasting that. So done. done. (laughs) Awesome. All right. Thanks, Aaliyah. Thank you so much for listening to Checkbox Outreach. We are excited to have you a part of the conversation and a part of the change. Please check us out at checkboxoutreach.com or on Twitter at Disrupt Outreach.